You are now entering the Transit Zone. Welcome to Transit Zone, more inquiring conversations from coronavirus world. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston in Narang on the Gold Coast. And Tim Dunlop in Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we live, work and are recording this podcast. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Yagamba people of the Narang District. We recognise their continuing profound connection to land, water and community. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. This time in the Transit Zone, our guest will be author and screenwriter Margaret Morgan, whose 2018 speculative fiction novel, The Second Cure, echoes much of what we're going through right now in coronavirus world, plus some. Margaret will be joining us very shortly. Margot, what's been happening in coronavirus world in your part of the woods? Well, I had an encounter with our border force. I thought I'd go to, for a drive to Kalani in the back roads and I, I didn't realise that it crossed over into New South Wales before coming back. And so I got waved through on the way down and then realised I had to come back. So I had to do a full confession leading into Kalani and I don't know why, but he said, honesty works and let me off. So it was one of those things. But the bigger picture is that Anastasia is under enormous pressure to open the border. She's being targeted probably because of the, the Queensland election and she's standing firm to date. But my prediction is that she will be forced to cave in because, you know, Sunshine Coast and, and the Gold Coast, I mean, we, we rely on Southerners coming up for winter and the devastation would just be enormous. So I think that she will open the borders by July 1. But Western Australia may be a different situation. I saw Mark McGowan, their premier, on the television going with a bit of a sneer, I might say. New South Wales, Ruby Princess, trying to tell us what to do, seriously. I think you're right. I think it was really interesting when the borders first closed down. I think I, I might have said this on the first episode, actually, that... It was really striking that McGowan didn't just say, hey, you know, for safety reasons, health reasons, we're closing the border. He actually said, we don't want you here and played to that local audience. I think you might be right about that. You mentioned to us last week that that arts precinct that you live in was very quiet, very empty. You're not seeing the usual folk around, particularly arts folk and actors, etc. Any uh, uptick in activity? Um, Absolutely not, even though It's interesting some of the little cafes and restaurants in the area are coming back to life and they've even opened a brand new one which is right next door to the new Conservatorium of Music on Sturt Street. It's a beautifully set up restaurant and cafe like restaurants and cafes often are these days. Um, I feel incredibly sorry for these small business people. It, it was all ready to go when coronavirus hit. They've actually opened the door now for its takeaway only. I guess a little uptick in that sort of activity, but as we were saying with Alison last week, it's going to be a long time before the performing arts come back. Still no sign from Prime Minister Morrison that he's going to relent even slightly, Tim and Margot, on on the arts, universities, etc. That's just not going to happen. So we still have that really strange situation, don't we, where 60 billion bucks worth of so-called error, but they're just not budging on that at all. I'm sort of leaning to the view now that it might have originally been an oversight, but it, it is deliberate now. Universities and, and the arts are targeted. We will just see what happens, won't we? I mean, universities uh, are the basis of our, our pure research and our, our applied research. The arts will always find a way to survive in, in some form. 
they always have, and, and maybe it'll be a more revolutionary form. It's clearly deliberate for obvious reasons. The two sectors to decide for ideological reasons that you're not going to support higher education and the arts is just so crazy. The whole notion that we can somehow get out of this without having thriving arts and university sector is like unbelievably stupid and short-sighted, and we're really going to pay the price down the track for this. On a very personal note, my partner came to me, I think it was Monday, and said, do you notice the noise? And I went, yes, I do, actually. We live a few ridges over from a, a very busy arterial highway, the Eastern Freeway here in Melbourne, and normally our brains have become habituated to shutting out that very distant but nevertheless perceptible sound of the traffic, particularly during the peak hour. As traffic dropped off, perhaps that part of our brains went off duty. And now we are noticing the increase in sound. We have noticed a lot of birds around too, extra birds. It may be my imagination. We've seen around the globe, of course, wildlife venturing into villages and towns and cities and lounging around on park benches, etc. And I've perhaps noticed a bit of that syndrome here in our backyard. A lot of birds, the currawongs are having a conference every morning. But that additional sound as the traffic starts to return to our streets, I've noticed it. The traffic is definitely back, there's no doubt. I feel that a lot of people are going to want to change the way they live their life after this. And, and I honestly think that decentralisation is going to become a really big outgrowth of this. Like if you've discovered you can can work from home and you're used to silence, traffic silence and birds, why wouldn't you consider a tree change? I think many things are going to happen as a result of this and, and I reckon that's one of them. You're in the Transit Zone. Tim Dunlop, I'm Peter Clark and Margot Kingston on the Gold Coast. We had four trucks to defend our town because our town doesn't have a lot of money, but we have hearts of gold, Mr. Prime Minister. No, nah, you're an idiot, mate. Did you mislead the House of Representatives when you said that no authorisation was provided by you? And why did your office do that if you had no role in authorising no, them? It's good to see that the Canberra Press Gallery is back to politics as usual with Parliament coming back. Yeah, thank you. I've answered your question. I said no. This is an important protection for a COVID safe Australia. I would liken it to the fact that if you want to go outside when the sun's shining, you've got to put sunscreen on. This is the same thing. When JobKeeper was designed and first costed, the uncertainties were extreme. What Treasury has done is made an estimate of what they thought could be the case. It was the worst case scenario, effectively, that they were forecasting, estimating. We are now in what is their best case scenario. What we have done is acted... It was just stunning to me the number of stories that were coming up in the press as the one-year anniversary of the Morrison government ticked over. There was just this, as often happens, I think, in political journalism, this confluence of views that somehow... Scott Morrison and the team were changed or transformed and we're even hearing talk about them being post-ideological. And I just thought that this kind of accentuate the positive sort of stories that became the norm were a real abrogation of journalistic duty, given what we know about this government. And it's fairly easy to run off a list of things such as the sports rot scandal, which 
seem to be vital in getting them elected in the first place, but there's still huge unresolved questions and serious questions around how those funds were used. And then we had the whole period early this year where, by any measure, the PM completely mishandled the government's response and his own response to the fires that we had at the start of the year. He went missing at the height of it. He went on holidays, badly judged holiday. His press office misled the media as to his whereabouts during all of that. And then we had, at the start of the pandemic period, a whole bunch of passengers let off the Ruby Princess liner who were COVID-19 positive, and that's been the proximate cause of many of the infections detected in Australia. We've had no accountability at the federal level in particular over that. Then their response to the economic disruption of the lockdown, by any measure, it's been completely inadequate. As we've already said, it's left out the key sectors of higher education and the arts. It's left huge holes around sole traders. And one of the most horrendous things we've done is thrown foreign students under the bus, who are a key part of our third largest export industry. And we had the whole COVID safe app thing, which was completely dishonestly oversold as sunscreen. And as we said with Lizzie O'Shea the week before last, it's now all but dead. And it's another failed tech project of the people who gave us robo-debt. In amongst all of this, Morrison closed down federal parliament effectively and instigated a new national governance body, which on some Levels has done some good work, but specifically excludes the federal opposition, which I think is just a power grab at the end of the day. They also appointed a manufacturing task force to the National COVID-19 Coordination Commission and stacked it with energy industry executives, especially the gas industry. And surprise, surprise, The Guardian had a leaked report the other day To quote that report, it said Australian taxpayers should underwrite a massive expansion of the domestic gas industry. What a shock. To top it all off, we've had this $60 billion miscalculation of the JobKeeper wage subsidy, which again seems to have been brushed under the carpet for some reason. And we've started a trade war with our biggest trading partner, China, which has resulted at this stage in $1.5 billion worth of barley exports being hit with, I think it's a 20% tariff by China. So how is this anything other than a trial of utter incompetence and neglect and quite possibly shady dealing? You can't tell me that if this was a Labor government with that track record, most of the media wouldn't be screaming for their removal at the moment. But instead, we got all these articles last week, Scott Morrison has transformed, he's learned, we're now post-ideological. Like, I mean, give me a break. I think part of it is that people are looking at the States and at Britain and are saying, Australia, we're in Nirvana. I think the comparative competence is a big factor in this. The best thing he's done is is the National Cabinet. Hopefully will continue. The idea of it being post-ideological, I agree with Tim, is just an absolute nonsense. The IR stuff I find fascinating that to say, okay, employers and employees, you get together and you come up with a consensus and then we'll pass it. I think that is a brilliant move. The likelihood is it will fall apart. But he is doing some 
interesting things. And I noticed during the last election that he had stumped the media, that he had found a way to actually just blow through any accountability, that sort of slightly smug, everything's okay. And he's perfected that now. He has beaten the media. There's no doubt about that. But for all the faults, we are just so much better off than America and Britain. That, To be honest, I feel a bit proud of us at the moment. I think we've done incredibly well. Our institutions have held up really well. I'm just not sure why he's getting the credit for it, other than the fact that he's the Prime Minister. If it had been left to him, we would have gone to the footy on that Sunday. It was the Premier's closing down borders, etc., etc., that did that. I take your point about the comparison with countries overseas, and I don't think a failing American state and a completely buggered up British state should be our point of reference here. And I think those things that I listed off just before We really need to take those seriously. Why do you think that the media are so compliant around the way that he presents? How has he found their measure? They sure are compliant, aren't they, at the moment, Tim? The address of the Prime Minister and the comparisons with Hawke are risible, in my view, just risible. Hawke would have had skin in the game, and he put skin in the game, whereas Scott Morrison is stepping back and keeping his hands clean. I don't agree with you at all. I think it's incredibly clever. They wrecked their government with work choices, and they haven't touched it since... There's no doubt in my mind he's a very clever politician. I mean, he really is Scotty from marketing and absolutely not to be underestimated after that election result. He is on his game at the moment and I think that people who care about a a progressive future our our country have to show him a lot of respect and have to do a lot of work to make him accountable because at the moment he has found a way to avoid accountability. He's got a stylistic way. It's that whole sense that's happening around the world. People want to believe in their government, want to believe in their leader because it's an existential crisis and he's riding that and he's doing it very successfully. Surely part of our vision has to be for some renewal, some renaissance of manufacturing at that, either the biomedical end, perhaps we can get back to making electric cars or at least the components for electric cars in this country, that the manufacturing has to be part of the vision and that really does require higher education and it requires skills. If you look at the collapse of revenue from the unis because there's no foreign students anymore because of the travel bans, etc., and the refusal to have job keepers so everyone loses their jobs, maybe they're actually trying to destroy the system and rebuild it in a private way because, you know, it is an independent source of power and it has got independent accountability. So this government doesn't want anything like that. So just throwing that in for a bit of dystopian... I think there's something in that, Margot, but you'd have to say that it isn't an an independent source of power. The vice-chancellors have been absolutely powerless to get the government to do anything. It's really showing up the weakness of that sector as a political force, I think. The university sector, the higher education sector, has been underfunded. That's what's brought about this fundamental distortion in the higher education sector, the industry as it is now, a marketplace rather than a cultural sector. And all the chickens have come home to roost, haven't they? International, particularly Chinese students, but international students from around the world. There's a distortion. And some university campuses have such a high percentage of international students. When the rugs pulled from under them, as COVID has done, we see what's happened. Oh, it doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, Government actions have destroyed that industry, if you look at an industry terms, the university industry, and yet they've got no compensation. It sticks out like a sore thumb, doesn't it? You're in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark, Margot Kingston and Tim Dunlop. 
Margaret Morgan, welcome to The Transit Zone. Thank you, Peter. Great to be here. First of all, before we hear in a little more detail some of the things you've been thinking about, what's your coronavirus world been like the last couple of weeks? How have you found it? I'm almost embarrassed to admit I've really had a good time. <laughs> I'm a homebody and, uh, you know, the homebodiness that's been enforced has been fine for me. My family are all working at home. I work at home all the time anyway. I've been doing a lot of cooking. I've um, become a bit of a cliche and learned how to make pasta from scratch. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but, I but I haven't gone the full stereotype with the sourdough starter. But I've been gardening and growing vegetables and herbs and, you know, toying with the idea of getting chickens. So, yes, I've turned into earth goddess. Margaret, I was saying to Tim the other day that technologies like Zoom and a lot of these social media and connecting media, it really got a great booster in coronavirus world. You go back a long way, don't you, with technology and you've really reflected upon it. Yes. Back in the early 90s, I became enchanted with the idea of social media. I just read Howard Rheingold's newly released book called The Virtual Community, which is an account of the first real online community called The Well in Los Angeles. At the time, I didn't even know anyone who owned a modem, but I managed to track down an ISP and the technology and so got into social media in a big way and I haven't really come out again. My friends at the time were bewildered by my phone being constantly engaged at night while I was meeting up with new friends across the world and they were even more bewildered when I brought home from the Netherlands a new husband I'd met on internet relay chat, which was a primitive form of online text that predated the graphical web and you couldn't even backspace if you made a typo. It was really early days. So we were internet dating before internet dating was a thing and were such a novelty that our wedding was featured on ABC TV on a show called HTTP, which is very hip. And our 25th wedding anniversary is next year. So, yeah, it's really startling in retrospect to contemplate how much that world has changed in the 27 years since I first heard that signature squawk of a dial-in modem. It's almost impossible to imagine how limited the world was when the only way you could communicate with people overseas was by expensive phone calls or letters that would take weeks to arrive. You know, if you were travelling, you were so isolated from Australia, you never heard any news about Australia. So now in these days of plague, I, I think about how we would have dealt with COVID-19 without the internet. You know, no telecommuting, no email, no Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or online shopping or news. You know, it's almost the stuff of science fiction or perhaps historical fiction. Margaret, that's great. It's interesting to hear that this is something we're all confronting at the moment, as you say. Do you think there's something irretrievably human is lost if we all retreat to our green screen rooms and conduct our life, especially our working life, via Zoom? Yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? My partner, he works in IT and he's been working at home throughout all this. And he doesn't want to go back. He's loving this. He's loving the fact that he, he doesn't have to commute anymore. The commute is now 30 seconds from him turning hmm. off the laptop and going out and playing with the dog in the garden, you know. And I don't know. I think that, yes, there are going to be things that are lost from that, but I think there are lots of things that will be gained as well, particularly with the commuting. And what Margot was saying earlier about people realising that they can work at home it might just open up a whole new type of social life that isn't isn't based around work, but it's based around, you know, local community. 
I think that's quite possible. What is the difference between a friendship formed and conducted on social media and one that's conducted in the usual way? They're, they're both real, aren't they, Margaret? Oh, totally real, yes. And I've got many, many friends over the decades that I have made initially online. My husband and I, we sort of think about having got to know each other inside out, really. You know, we we started with text, we started with words, and it was well over a year before we physically met. And at that point, we thought, whoa, there's hormones here as well, which was all lovely. (laughs) But, you know, it was it was intense and it was intimate and it was very honest. I don't know how honest it is now in the days of internet dating, you know, where people are kind of trying to sell themselves in a way that I certainly wasn't when I was getting to know him. There is a stripped down nature of online communication that can be extremely good, extremely intimate and, and positive. No backspacing. <laughs> no backspacing. <laughs> Margaret, of course, your book, The Second Cure, has been in the background during our discussion today. What's the basic premise of the book, without giving away anything crucial? It's about a a parasite that currently exists, which is toxoplasmosis. And my version of it is a mutation that kills off cats, so it has really significant effects on the environment and the ecology. But more importantly, humans become the primary host. And much as toxoplasmosis changes brain structure and behaviour in prey animals that contract it, it now changes human behaviour and takes away people's fear, in some cases takes away religion, religious belief, and also causes in a lot of people a really florid form of, of synesthesia where their senses start to meld, you know, and they can smell sounds or music has colours, for example. It bifurcates society into those who really, really don't want it in their world because it's limiting religion, it's limiting the power of the right because people are becoming socially and politically reckless. And so those people are trying to stop it. There are other people who are embracing it because it kind of creates a new creative renaissance with the synesthesia. So it explores the way that society fractures across the world. And when a cure is found for it, that becomes a very political matter. Margaret, you've probably heard that Mozart was able to conceive of a symphony in one gulp, if you like. This is a very research-based book as well. You just talked about the biology of it a little. It's dystopian and there's lots of politics and there's music in it as well. Did you conceive of this arc, this world, almost fully grown? Did you write into it? Oh, it was a moment of exactly like that, a moment of inspiration. And and it was, I, I remember the minute that it happened, I was on a field trip and I was teaching, um, I was a sessional tutor on an, in an ecology field trip. I was just sitting there looking at this lake. I'd been studying toxoplasmosis and parasitism. And I just thought, what if it jumped species and had a brain change effect on humans. And yeah, the whole thing kind of fell into place from that point onwards. It was just a single moment. It's weird. I love the way the creative brain works sometimes. How long did it take from the moment to the final draft? It was published about four and a half years after that first moment. I read Tim's interview with you and and it, it seemed like you were very open. Oh, I'm writing a novel here on social media. Do you want to help? These are my ideas or whatever, which strikes me as talk about fearless. How did you find that sort of crowdsourcing or open-ended conversation on social media as you were writing the novel? It wasn't too public. You know, it was with, with a certain cadre of 
or friends online. But but yeah, it was really nice. And you know, sort of you'd have a question about something, you'd throw it open and people would be so generous with their time, you know, and their ideas. I have friends in America that I've actually that I met online who feel who feel a great sort of sense of ownership about the novel because yeah. they, they lived through it, you know, with me writing it. And when I first got it accepted by Penguin Random House, you know, and I was screaming from the rooftops. It was like a party. I mean, honestly, you know, I, I love my online friends. Late 2018 and this novel of science and um, and arts and research and pulled it all together with this idea that there's this protozoa and, you know, and obviously dystopian, like, you know, North Queensland secedes and religious zealots take over and, you know, all is lost, etc. But it struck me that COVID-19 has maybe has done the same with affecting our brains and our behaviour and our attitudes, not from getting it, but from fearing it. Your premise still works with a variation, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, that's right. One of the things that I explored in the novel was the way that people respond to fear. And one of the brain changes that occurs with the infection is that you lose your sense of fear because it affects the limbic system. And fear is a fascinating thing in that it works differently on different types of brains. And people who are tend to be conservative and frightened of change tend to have a, an overactive amygdala in the limbic system. They tend to be people who whose first response is a sort of a visceral fear and a disgust to things that they don't understand or don't trust. Well, we all feel fear, obviously, about COVID, but some people's response to fear is to shut out any threats of people who are different. They embrace the um, hierarchical populist leaders who want to give them simplistic solutions. You know, I think that what we're seeing in America is really interesting in terms of Trump because although the rest of us are throwing up our hands in horror at his responses to it, his base is bedding down. You know, they are really loving this stuff that he's coming out with, with these ludicrous suggestions about injecting disinfectant. And I think that, you know, there is a real diversity in the way that people are responding to the fear. The real question is going to be how, as we emerge from this, we're going to be dealing with climate change. You know, that to me is is vastly bigger than COVID-19 could ever be. And if we come out of this, you know, thinking, oh, let's build more gas pipelines, we're lost. We're really lost. It's gone off the radar. And that really does scare me, you know, because we can't afford it to go off the radar. <laughs> I mean, I thought people are going to look at the global greenhouse gas emissions, you know, having decreased over this period and think, oh, look, we can change things. But I don't think so. I think we're just going to get back to it. Margaret, you emphasise fear and anxiety, and I think we're all experiencing that in different ways according to our individual circumstances. One little thing really shocked me when I saw on television again the other day, but early on it was mentioned too, the Greek Orthodox Church insisting that they continue to use the communal spoon when they have the chalice of wine and everyone sips from the same spoon. And the argument was from the believers within the Greek Orthodox Church that that's the blood of Christ. There's no way that the virus could reside there. There was no way that the virus could infect people from that communal spoon and the blood of Christ. I find that extraordinary. You probably do too as as rationalists. But, and it's been commented on by a number of commentators within the press in the United States, 100,000 people and rising in the United States have died from coronavirus. But I don't sense much national mourning or ritual or ceremony to 
to respond to that. Is that how you see it? Yes, I do. There's a sort of a strange disjunct going on. And there are definitely religious groups in America that are doing wonderful things, you know, to, to support each other and to support people who are, who are hungry, for example. But the religious right has such a stranglehold politically now in America that I think that they're just looking at this as an opportunity. They're busily exploiting what they can to get Trump re-elected, the Trump tribe, which is seriously a cult, so irrational. And we are talking about unreason. It's utterly a medieval in a lot of ways. The more I've looked at Trump, I think I sort of was prepared for it as a Queenslander because I grew up, up under Sir Joe and he was our Trump before Trump. Completely irrational, you yes. know, cancer cures, censorship, complete disrespect for the media, crony corruption, everything else. My first big project in, in journalism when I worked for the Korea Mars, I got sent up to my hometown, Mackay. Everyone got sent up all around the state to interview people about whether Joe should run for PM. So Joe won by gerrymander and... Trump won by Electoral College. Pauline Hanson is a sick pre-Trump. Populists who, who dunk on elites can get a lot of support. What's unusual about America, I think, we've got a, a pretty solid 40% of the population that is so happy that the elites are, are freaking out that they, they're paying no mind to their own self-interest. I think we're, we're literally watching the decline and fall of the American empire. And the COVID-19 pandemic has just put a, a very large, bold, full stop to the sentence, there is no leader of the free world. And Tim, were we talking much more about journalism? You touched on our political journalism here in Australia in direct relation to Morrison, but what Margaret is saying really does go to their political journalism, doesn't it? Trump has been able to game them the whole way. We've seen minor shifts in the orthodox way they go about their journalism, their, their political journalism especially. But he's still gaming them day by day. Nothing's really shifted in the New York Times, the Washington Post. They're gamely battling on, but part of it is that he's got that personal Twitter broadcast account, a, a channel straight out to his base, and that's amplified daily, almost hourly, by the mainstream media. So the tipping point in his base, certainly, that's not going to happen. But some sort of shift or transformation in the way journalism addresses the Trump situation. I think that's right. He's done two things. One, he's bypassed them. He's got the platform of Twitter. He doesn't need them. They need him more than he needs them. And we've seen the head of, for instance, the CBS network just praising Trump for the extra business that he's bringing because people are turning on the TV more. But he's also turned them into the enemy the whole fake media, fake news thing that he constantly chants. The thing that gets me about that, though, is it only works because he's pushing an open door. I think the media had already lost the trust of significant sections of the population. It was accelerated by the move to digitisation in the late 90s as things went online and the business model collapsed. In some ways, some organisations have been able to respond to that, but very few media organisations have responded to the necessary changes that occur because of digitisation in how they actually do their job is generally talked about in terms of balance and, you know, getting one view here and another view there and, and presenting it or simply just being a reporter and reporting what someone says. 
those things don't work anymore as legitimate tools of media when you have a situation like Trump and and a whole cadre of politicians, particularly on the right around the world these days, who will just stand there and bareface lie. The Steve Bannon thing of the way to deal with the media is to flood the zone with bullshit. Stand there with a straight face and say, take disinfectant or whatever. And the media really hasn't figured out a way to handle this. I'm not even sure there is a way to handle this, but it has completely undermined our sense of the media as a fourth estate. And even I think people like me, who are very supportive of the idea of the media as cornerstone of democratic governance, can feel really betrayed by the way the media constantly fail to hold people to account in this new environment. One of the things that I think, even though, as Tim has pointed out, you know, the ideology is is obviously underpinning an awful lot of Morrison's responses, it hasn't overwhelmed the science, and that's the big difference between us and the UK and the US, where the science has just become, you know, a, an absolute plaything and and ignored and only used when it suits the ideology. So I think that that's one of the reasons that we should rightly be proud of what's happening here. I can clearly recall the moment when I thought, I think Australia's going to be okay, because Tim's right, we had so many fuck-ups early was when he announced that National Cabinet. That was groundbreaking. And I think, Margaret, to your point, that has helped the science stay centred and and grounded here because you've got Labor states and Liberal states and you haven't had that partisan Labor v Liberal on strong measures. And I I think that 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 National Cabinet was a masterstroke and it has grounded our debate in a way that has been very, very helpful to dealing with the, with the coronavirus crisis. Margaret, your book, The Second Cure, let's hear just a taste, a scene in an airport. Having to set aside three hours for security checks for a two-hour flight irritated Bridget. DNA barcoding, iris, palm and fingerprint scans, galvanic skin response, facial recognition, pregnancy test, of course, to ensure no woman in the first half of her pregnancy left the country for a termination. Abortion tourism, they called it, and the penalties were fierce. Bridget thought nostalgically of the days when metal detectors and baggage x-rays were the most intrusive part of travelling. This, on the other hand, was part of the labyrinthine process of obtaining a Capricornian exit visa. Getting into the country was even harder, So determined was the Effenberg regime that Toxoplasma pestis not find its way into the brains of its citizenry. She had reached the final section and stood at the counter signposted DNA probing as an unsmiling official with a buzz cut scanned her ID. She put out her hand and he squeezed a disc the size of an old five-cent piece against the pad of her left thumb. From within the disc, a minute dart shot into her flesh. Within seconds, the display on the button flashed green, indicating that a sufficient blood sample had been successfully retrieved. He pushed the disc into a slot on the machine on the counter and directed Bridget to the next desk, where, after another ID scan, she would receive her results. This part of the exit processing was always the most time-consuming, with travellers waiting an hour or more, while they enviously eyed the few seats provided 
always full of course. They leant against walls or meandered about, trying to look patient. They weren't bored. The atmosphere was too intimidating for boredom, and there seemed to Bridget a sense of just suppressed panic beneath the surface of their passivity. She settled in for the wait, finding a spot against the wall close to the results counter. A small boy sitting cross-legged on the floor playing with a game console sporadically looked up at her and smiled shyly. She'd smile back and he'd look away, returning to his game. Standing next to the boy was his mother, wearing the white lace purity mask of the devout. She was holding a baby, bouncing and cajoling it to ease its fretful wailing. Most babies in this section of the exit hall cried in Bridget's experience. They weren't exempt from the DNA probe, and those administering it were not adept at bedside manner. She had only 22 minutes until her flight left, and there were others there who'd arrived before she had. She'd cut it fine in the past, and she knew it was entirely possible she could miss her plane. She also knew there was no point in complaining. Another number flashed on the display, and the mother checked her documentation. It was their turn. She hurried her son to unfold his legs, and then herded him and carried her still whimpering baby to the results counter. Just as she reached it, a siren bleated in time with a red light that flashed blindingly above the desk. Five masked security officers converged on them. The mother's eyes grew with fear. Bridget had never seen this happen before, not at the airport, but had heard the stories. No, we're not. We can't be, the woman told the officers. The boy wrapped his arms around her leg and the baby cried more loudly. Not your children, madam, just you, one of them said. I can't be unclean. You've made a mistake. I've had the vaccine. I've been tested. And you'll be retested, that's your right. Please cooperate, madam. A female officer stepped forwards. And it was at that point that the woman realised her baby was being taken from her arms. No. You can't. No. No. The last no was a long, pulsating shriek. The baby was prized away as the boy was deftly scooped up by another officer held by his waist. Mummy, he screamed. Stop the mummy, no. Eyes flashing at the people around her, the woman desperately sought assistance that she must have known wouldn't come. Instead, a teenage boy spat a gob of mucus at her. It splattered on the grey tiles at her feet. Then, abruptly, they were all gone. The children through one door, their mother through another. The echo of their cries faded, succeeded by the studied nonchalance of the other passengers, silent and avoiding each other's gaze. Another number flashed on the screen. It was Bridget's. She would make the plane after all. She collected her passport and visa chip, retrieved her overnight bag, and made her way to the gates. It was half an hour into the flight that she realised her jaw was still clenched. That is just a short scene from Margaret Morgan, who's our guest today in the Transit Zone, from her speculative fiction book, The Second Cure. Now, Margot, what have you been reading this week? I'm still reading my chapter of Pema Chodron, Place That Scare You, and May Sarton, Journal of a Solitude. And this week, the way I've been um, getting to bed in a good space is watching um, The Clinton Affair, which came out late 2018. It's on SBS now. It is 
wow. Like it's it's got Monica Lewinsky tells the whole story in an interview of her um, entrapment by um, Linda Tripp and and the Star investigation. So it's it's very even handed. It's got all the players left to right, Carvel to Kenneth Star, told very straight in that US style that I really like. And one of the big things that struck me is the same faces, the same journos, the same politicians, the the same partisan dynamic. So like the ultimate political melodrama and the big hair, the big hair of the 90s, just, just, just disgusting. But also like you can see the seeds of where America is now. It's just so good and I'd highly recommend it. Oh, that sounds fascinating, Margaret. Oh, yeah, you'll love it, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Margaret? What have you had your nose in? I've um, recently read a debut novel by an Adelaide writer, Rachel Mead, called The Application of Pressure. It's about frontline health workers, which is very timely, it, specifically a couple of paramedics. And it's a kind of vignettes of their work and their private lives and how the nature of their work, which is so intense, just impacts on their psyche. It's absolutely brilliant. It's beautifully written. She's a poet as well. And it's very funny. It's got some really dark humour. It's very honest and emotional and wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you, Margaret. Now, you may know Damien Broderick. He wrote a non-fiction book uh, called The Spike back in, it was published back in 1997. I remember I interviewed him on on uh, ABC Radio at the time when the book came out to meet. He's rather angular, I've got to say. The Spike is fascinating, it's subtitled Accelerating into the Unimaginable Future. But that was back in 1997 when he was talking about confluence of all the different technological factors where we've been discussing today in some ways. Back then, of course, it was much hazier. I'm glad you mentioned Howard Rheingold. I've got him and quite a number of those digital prophets on my bookshelf still. And it's fascinating to go back through those pages, isn't it? And read what they were saying then. And the act of imagination from them and the act of imagination from us as we read them. And I did watch the second episode of Almost Australian, uh, Miriam Margoilis. She's travelling around Australia meeting lots of different people and I went into it with low expectations thinking, oh yeah, or whatever. But in fact, her fearlessness and her openness has been quite impressive and I've quite enjoyed that series. I always enjoy the landscape out in the centre of Australia too, so that's a bonus for me. Tim, what have you been reading? I just recently was commissioned to write an essay about the way in which the left or progressives have kind of lost that language of common purpose that comes from religious belief. How do progressives incorporate that message, the spiritual bigger-than-yourself aspect, without necessarily going down the path towards religiosity and institutionalised religion. So that's kind of the thrust of the essay. But part of the reading that I'm doing for that, I just started a book by Aboriginal writer Tyson Yunkaporta called Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And I'm thinking, especially in an era of pandemic and climate change, it's more that sort of thinking that has to infiltrate the politics of the left. Margaret, thank you so much for coming into the Transit Zone with us today. It's been wonderful. Oh, thank you, Peter. And thank you, Margot and Tim. I've had a lovely time. Me too. Margaret Morgan. Our guest next week in the Transit Zone is economist Professor John Quiggan from the University of Queensland. John's latest book, 
Economic and Two Lessons, published about this time last year, has been described as the purest distillate of the public intellectual's craft. On our Transit Zone agenda, the way coronavirus world is affecting the economic world, the success or otherwise of the Morrison government's response to the pandemic, and John's own work on a participatory income and a jobs guarantee. John Quiggan in the Transit Zone. Please follow us on Twitter, Transit Zone Pod. That's our Twitter handle, Transit Zone Pod. These podcasts are now searchable and you can subscribe at Spotify and by checking out iTunes. If you have any comments on this or any of our podcasts or even suggestions about how these podcasts should evolve and coronavirus world topics for all of us to explore here in the zone, please email us at transitzonepod at gmail.com. You can also send us audio comments and suggestions as well. Maybe your own brief audio essay, transitzonepod at gmail.com. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Margot. Bye now. Bye. Thanks, Peter. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia, for the Transit Zone team, Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston. Thanks for being with us, and we'll catch you next time here in the Transit Zone. Bye. You are now leaving the Transit, the transit Zone. zone.